and I think four dispatch managers in 18 months. And a lot of that was just driven from just this constant day-to-day crisis management, frustrated delivery drivers who would load a truck, then they'd have to unload the truck and put different product on the truck. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. Growing a business is challenging. You might require newer facilities, your employees might be overworked and might ask for additional resources. The process of growth could feel overwhelming, especially with operational challenges. You might feel that you are spinning your wheels and your efforts are not paying off. In today's episode, we have our guest, Ian Pratt, who discusses how to distinguish between the need for additional resources and operational bottlenecks that need to be optimized before investing further. We also had a chance to discuss the specific steps executives need to take to undertake process improvement initiatives. Finally, we touched on why tracking of unit costs is vital for lean or continuous improvement efforts. Let me introduce Ian to you. Ian is a hands-on business optimization practitioner who has 30 years of solid experience applying improvement methods across all elements of an organization. His experience is expensive, covering a wide range of industry, sectors, and business functions. Ian has been directly responsible for the development of continuous improvement cultures and understands the relationship between all of the elements of the value stream. His deep and broad understanding of business context combined with his Systematic approach to root cause analysis enables him to optimize the value stream, achieving inventory reduction, improved consistency, and reduced process waste. Specifically, Ian's strengths are demonstrated in his ability to re-engineer complex cross-functional processes to eliminate all forms of waste, automate process steps, and develop people to have a broader understanding of the business environment and improved data for decision-making. His ability to quickly engage stakeholders and adapt to new environments eliminates barriers to change. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hey, welcome to the show, Ian. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me here today. Of course, my pleasure. Just to kick things off, do you want to start with your personal story and what you are focusing on these days? My passion is uh, helping organizations to um, release untapped potential within the organization. I've I've worked with um, recently with a window manufacturer um, whose inventory was um, overflowing their warehouse, finished goods inventory, Um, And I help them untangle the problems in their um, planning processes so that they ended up with um, a lower, a far lower level, about 15% of their original inventory. So that's the sort of thing I do, but I tend to like to work with the leaders and coach them so that they have a sustainable uh, business model after I've finished working with them. Okay, so obviously I want to dig deeper into this story that's very interesting and we are always looking to see how we can improve our processes, how we can improve our results. But before we get there, one question that we ask every single guest, and that is going to be, what is your perspective on growth, Ian? What does growth mean to you? Growth means two things. It's it's looking that way at uh, making more sales, but it's also looking this way at 
making the same volume of output at a lower cost, um, which is growing the profit. Um, and there's a, probably a third angle for looking at growth, and that is what is the uh, quality of life of my employees? So are they coming to work and having a positive experience and going home with that positive mindset? Are they coming to work and having a negative experience and going home and taking that negativity into their social life? So there's three areas to look at growth. Okay, so top line, bottom line, and quality of life is what you mentioned, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, they're all very important. And if you get the third one right, the other two will happen for you. Okay, so in your opinion, I guess quality of life is slightly more important. Is that the, the first driver that you consider when you get into any engagement? Is that always the, the first thing that you have in your mind? It's the end game that I have in my mind. So always thinking, right, what's the culture like here? Are people frustrated? And is there a good relationship, a negative relationship between the manager and the employees? Are the employees engaged? Are they just going through the motions? But then I look at what are the systems that sit behind that and how are they contributing to their current state. So at the window manufacturer, there was a lot of tension in the the warehousing dispatch areas. And the challenge there was to find the source of that tension, solve that problem so that they could work in a more planned approach. And in that organization, the planning was incredibly reactive, that someone would say, hey, this builder needs their windows tomorrow. Can you make them now? And so tomorrow, surely we knew about this five days ago. So looking at how information flowed in the organization, how the ERPs were working and making some changes to the way the information was flowing so that there wasn't the crisis management on a day-to-day basis so that the employees could could have a plan and execute the plan. Their quality of life improved, but inventory in the warehouse came down dramatically as well. Interesting. So can you describe the tension a bit more? So I guess, you know, one thing that I'm hearing is there was the planning was reactive. I think you mentioned that, but describe the tension a bit more. Okay, well, the, when I can't, would come into the um, to the factory and talk to the people in the dispatch area, they'd all be venting frustration and anger at this is what we were meant to do today, but now these two jobs have come in at the last minute and we've got to sort this out and now we've got to move all this inventory because we've got to get the stuff that's behind there. And there's just constant crisis management by the employees to try and meet a dynamic plan from the, the front office. Um, so there was... They had high turnover. They had, um, I don't know, I think four dispatch managers in 18 months. And a lot of that was just driven from just this constant day-to-day crisis management, frustrated delivery drivers who would load a truck, then they'd have to unload the truck and put different product on the truck. And then they'd go out and start their day. So they'd lose two hours in the morning, which would mean they'd have to work two hours overtime to finish their deliveries for the day. And then, you know, if they had soccer training that night, they'd be missing it because somebody somewhere, the information wasn't flowing in the right sequence to allow them to come in and execute their job um, from the start of the day. So how did this all start? Was it uh, growth? Was it employee team? What was the real trigger for this tension? Uh, yeah, it's definitely growth. Uh, in the building industry in, in the region of the world that I live in, in Adelaide, Australia, the building industry is very seasonal. Um, in winter, it slows down a bit. And then uh, coming out of winter, it, it ramps up a lot. So you have that seasonality. As they're coming out of winter, you've got the high demand coming in. Quite often, people would order a house in January for it to be built in November because they know they had that slow period where, you know, when it rains, nobody's working on site. So it was more this seasonality that was impacting them. They, they had grown and building was in a growth phase in this region. So their demand was going up, but their systems weren't able to cope with the increased volume throughput plus the seasonal uplift in volume that's typical as well. They probably could have gone on as they were. They just would have kept turning over a lot of employees and spending a lot of time on money on overtime and 
rework within their deliveries and they would have had to build a new warehouse for their excess inventory. But before they invested that money, that's why they brought me in to have a look. Okay, so new warehouse was the reason and there was the employee churn that you already mentioned. But if they have been in the market for some time, even if they have seasonality, most of the businesses have figured out, even if they are running on paper, how to accommodate for the seasonality. So again, do you have any more background in terms of how this all started? Was it because of the loss of key employee? Maybe an employee was there who was really good. He or she was really good at managing everything. And then they lost him or her. And all of a sudden, the hell broke loose. So what was the trigger? Do you have any more background there by any chance? Look, I've been in plenty of organizations that have been relatively dysfunctional on the inside for a large period of time. And it's at some point, the penny drops with the owner or they get a new owner. Um, in this particular case, their inventory had been climbing for a number of years okay. and had reached a point where it exceeded the capacity of the current warehouse. Um, okay. So um, then they're like, well, before we build a warehouse, we should look at why we're ending up with so much finished goods inventory. So they had to they had to invest a capital. They're at the point where they needed capital to continue functioning. Right. So I guess, you know, let's say if I'm a business owner and I'm looking to see what are going to be my symptoms when I should be probably reviewing my operations or the business performance, one of these symptoms could be that if I'm requiring excess inventory, that could be a good thing if I'm getting a lot more sales and revenue, but that may not be as good thing if I'm not getting sales, but I am maintaining excess inventory and having to build a warehouse. Would you agree with that? Yes, um, definitely. I, I would look at that at any point if if your plan is changing on the day you're executing it, there's a problem. Okay. So describe to me more uh, reactive planning. So what is the difference between reactive planning and the proactive planning and how you would change that? Okay. So what happens in organization is information doesn't flow as nicely as, as you would logically think. So a customer places an order, then there's a delay to you commence the manufacture, then you, you deliver it. And in the building industry, which is a little dynamic because houses get delayed and yep. um, the delay of the house requiring the windows that information wasn't feeding through into the planning processes so a reactive plan is one where you, you create a plan but then you, you're constantly changing it that creates rework for everybody in your system so you suddenly have an urgent order that needs to be done today so you get the people that start to quickly rush through one door so you can get it out then the dispatch people have to wait around for that order and then you get it loaded and then then take out this one door that was missed or is suddenly urgently required in a balanced planning process all the information is flowing at the time that it is is most critically needed so the change that i implemented to reduce the warehousing which is at the end of the process was yep. to provide the person at the front of the process with a way of checking that the order wasn't delayed before they started manufacture so um, identifying what has and has not been delayed up front the first person in the manufacturing process actually controlled the level of inventory that that you held at the end of the process so but what that did is meant that almost never did you come along and say, hey, we need to change today's plan or we've got an urgent order because all the urgent orders have been sorted out at the beginning of the process. They flowed through in their normal fashion and they just look like any other order. In a reactive planning, you're constantly changing and dynamic and, and people are getting frustrated because information isn't flowing around and they're not really sure what they're supposed yep. to be doing. In a planned approach, the information is flowing and it's starting at the beginning of the process and nice and evenly flowing through the entire process. 
Okay, so give me a little bit more about the size of the organization. So you did mention that they had like four dispatch managers, but how large was the organization overall from the corporate perspective? Um, the organization employed about 70 people, okay. uh, manufacturing and dispatching windows um, uh, for pretty well all of South Australia and parts of Victoria. Yeah. Uh, but the office I dealt with, which was the Adelaide Independent Business Unit, working with the general manager, they I think they employed about 70 and they made about 80% of domestic windows in our region. Okay. So walk me through their systems, what they were using. Were they completely manual? Were they on any specific systems? They had an ERP system in place, but they were pulling the data to commence manufacturing um, eight days before manufacturing, before the delivery date. So their, their manufacturing window was five days, but they were pulling the orders for day eight, eight days early. But what I did is uh, analyse the date that builders tend to change the order and 80% or 90% of builders change their order on day seven. So I just shifted their pre-planning from day eight to day six and provided a format that the frontline employees could look at and go, right, yeah, I can see where these orders are all at. So they could then pick which one to start manufacturing. So empowering them to make choices on which which order to manufacture based on a colour code system that the orders had against them that was printed out. So all the information was in their systems. It just wasn't presented in a way that the employees could then use to make choices about what work they did. And what they'd done is built contingency into each stage of the process. So the person who produced all the work orders and got all of the manufacturing diagrams together, they only needed one day to do it, but they gave them three. So if they were running late, they could still get it done on time. So they had all this contingency built into their processes, but that contingency meant they were missing. They pulled the manufacturing work orders to manufacture, and then the system was updated after they pulled it. So the two pieces of information were not in sync any longer. Yeah. Um, so what I changed is got the information to be in sync. And um, what they were working off of was a printed production order with a due date written on it. I had that due date removed and gave a separate list of due dates that could be updated intraday, you know, it could be updated two, three times a day if you wanted to, to the first person in the manufacturing process so they could go down and just pick which order to do next based on the current system data. So this seems to be the example of, let's say, hand assembly. Their production floor must be very hand assembled. It's probably yeah. a job shop. So do you typically work with just the job shops and hand assembly shops? Or do you experience work, do you have experience working with any other uh, machine oriented production floors as well? I have in my earlier days, yeah, definitely. More recently, though, in our region, we don't have a lot of um, high-volume manufacturing. Okay. So the automotive industry has pulled out of our region. Okay. And we're now a much more a service-orientated. We're mining services, farming, agriculture, those sorts of things are more dominant um, in the region. So, yeah, I, I'm working um, at the moment with um, a mining company which has a high-volume manufacturing. They actually produce the end product. They don't just dig it out of the ground. It goes the whole way through the process. So it's more of a continuous production operation. It's probably similar to a lot of like plastics manufacturing these days. So, yeah, I'm working with one of them at the moment and looking at uh, and coaching. They've probably got about 100 supervisors, and I'm coaching them on how to identify waste and eliminate it from their business. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about this one. So what was the waste in this particular process that you just mentioned and what do you do to remove that? Um, again, it, and whether I'm working with an insurance company or a manufacturing, what I find is quite often that the, the planning processes are the, the first foundation that's wobbly. So if yep. you can fix the planning processes, you can fix the rest. Now, 
the the part the area that I'm working with at the moment in the mining that they have the same problem that um, they they go to mine an area but they've got surveyors surveying it on the same day as the miners are trying to mine it and somebody's trying to um, add a water extension in there as well so that getting the planning so that it runs nice and smoothly yeah is um, their largest area of waste so um, ERP systems are fantastic for um, if when you get them right to help align all of your resources so that things are happening sequentially as or happening um, in a nice smooth flow rather than yep. multiple people trying to work on the same part of the equipment at the same time. The area I'm looking at, they're probably 50% of their time is um, unproductive due to poor planning. So we're working on um, identifying the, the failures within the planning systems. But what we're trying to do is instead of a holistic program is coach the frontline employees and supervisors to chip away every day, fix one problem and at the end of the year, you fix 365 problems and things are a lot better. So that's the style lean we're trying to implement there. Okay, so 50% unproductive is a lot. So what are some of the reasons why the process is 50% uh, unproductive? Is it just because there's a lot of bottleneck in the process? W- what are the core reasons? Look, and again, this is across all industries that I look at have the same problem is that when the plan and not enough effort is put into the plan, people plan their next task after they finish their first task during the day. Okay. So they come in, they pick a task, they go to do it. They can't do it because there's a, either some material missing or something like that, right? So they put that aside and then they pick up a new task and yep. then they're going to try and execute that new task. And I've seen this in financial services businesses that employ only six people. Yep. And they spend 50% of their time picking up and putting down work rather than doing it. So if you ask the employees, are you busy all day? They are busy all day. Yeah, but they're picking up a task and putting it down and picking up another task and doing something on that and putting it down. They're not seeing anything all the way through. So, and the same in the mining company, it's it's about getting them to have an executable plan at the start of the day so the employees can go out and do their first job, the second job, the third job and the fourth job and then come back and all those jobs are done rather than going out to do the first job, having a problem coming back, sorting that out and then going to the second job. So when I say it's waste, the employees would say they're busy. Yeah but they're not adding value. Yep. And the same, what I find is when I'm coaching leaders and we look at um, in the leader standard work is that quite often leaders are incredibly busy as well. Yep. And you know, they're in meetings, they're addressing email, they're firefighting and all those sorts of things, but they're not actually adding any value. So what, what we need to do is get people to let go of some of the inefficiencies and get them to have an executable plan at the beginning of the day, then execute the plan and focus the plan on the things that add the most value within the business. Okay, so when you design these processes and plans, and sometimes those could be slightly prescriptive, and I don't know, you know, how people react to them. If they want any changes in those processes, are you going to have enough room in these processes to accommodate those contingencies? Okay, so I don't design any processes. What I do is I coach people on how planning processes generally work, and then they work out how that would work in their environment okay and what i talk about is very much the plan do check hack cycle is that you when they're doing their planning up front and designing their processes i i talk to them about use the 80 20 rule 20 percent of the effort to get 80 percent of a solution and then continuously improve it from there so build in the entire continuous improvement cycle out for three six months so you can put something in monitor it and you use visual management to display how you're tracking whether your KPIs are improving as a result of your planning and then you, you make changes, you know, do some root cause analysis. And you need to involve people from frontline to, to middle managers in that process um, 
the middle managers bring more the commercial view and the front line will, will problem solve so that it actually works for them. Okay. So when you do these coachings, what will be the deliverable that you are going to have to the operations manager? Is it, is it going to be just the coaching and then they are going to design the processes or do you engage, let's say for three to six months? How does the engagement work? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, it's definitely three to six months. Um, I turn down work if people want me to just come in and give them advice. Okay. Um, the problem is 90% of people don't know how to implement. Okay. So if you just give them advice, you come back in two years' time, they'll still be where they were. So I haven't added any value. Right. So to me, there needs to be an improvement in business performance that's you know preferably five to ten times the cost of my engagement and annual okay. improvement to make it worth doing. So if you yep. come, if I come to an incredibly well-run business, I'll look at it and say, well, I can help you a little, but you're doing really well. You're going to pay me a lot, but not get a lot of benefit from it. So in that environment, I'd take more of a, just a, a mentoring rather than a, a heavy load engagement. Yeah. But in organizations where there's a lot of chaos going on and you look at it, you go, I, I know I can give you 10 times the cost of employing me. So then I'll come in for three or six or 12 months, whatever's required. And sometimes that's only two days a week or three days a week for that duration to help them understand their problem, fully understand the problem, identify possible solutions and then help them implement and then do some iterations of learning and measure the improvements in performance, either cost down, volume up, quality up, service up, whichever there is the key KPI for them. And then I help them to actually get that benefit. So the business performance is actually improved by the time I leave. So let's say I'm the manufacturing executive, okay? And obviously I know that I have a problem. That's why I'm talking to you, right? So I'm inviting you to my facility. Now you have to tell me how many days you need to be you need to be there at my site. So let's say if I'm inviting you today at my site, what would you like me to do in order to make sure number one, you have all the resources that you need to be successful and how the day is going to be structured? How many resources do you need to be able to make sure you are able to get the, the data, the KPIs, whatever you need to be successful to do whatever you are going to do? Okay, so what I normally start with, if somebody comes out and says, look, we've got a problem, can you come out and, and help us fix it? Is normally yeah. say, well, let's just agree on a 10-day engagement upfront. And in okay, those I'm... 10 days, I'll analyze your business and I'll yeah. tell you what the problem is, what the solution is, and how long it would take to solve that problem. So try and... I've had people come to me and go, Ian, I want to give you a six-month contract. Can you come here and fix this problem? I'm like, I don't know if I can fix it in six months. I need to come and see the problem. I need to feel it. I need to understand what's broken in the business that's causing that problem so that I can tell you whether or not I can actually fix that in six months. You know, if their problem is their ERP system is really poorly implemented, then, yeah, it's going to take them two years to get over that and a lot of money. If the problem is just simple information flow and problems with simple planning processes, then that's definitely like uh, between six weeks and, and three months. To, to get them on the right track. So how do you find these KPIs? I mean, do you typically require the financial statements from my site? So let's say if I invite you and you are going to be two days at my site and you want to look at, you know, what are the problems? So let's say one of the problems could be I have the excess inventory as well. And my employees are saying that they probably need a new warehouse. They need a lot more employees and they are already overworked and they are threatening me that they are going to leave my organization. So that's my problem right now. <laughs> I'm yep. inviting you to, to help me with that, right? So let's say if I invite you, do I need to show you my financial statements to be able to find yep. the KPIs? Or how would you find the KPIs? 
Um, the KPIs come from looking at the value stream. So okay. what you know, in a manufacturing business, one of the KPIs is probably cost of yeah. unit sales. So if you don't know that, there's your first problem. So we need to, and I have gone to a client, a timber mill, where they had no idea what the cost of any of their particular products were. So we implemented it. It took maybe two days, a very crude activity-based costing system. Yep. And that identified the approximate cost. And we were able to identify which products were losing money and which ones were making huge returns. And unfortunately for them, the products that were losing money were the ones that they produced in the highest volume and did some work with their customers to, to make them a lot more profitable. Um, but no, I come in and have a look at like what's the value chain, you know, just some basic measures like what's the cost per unit sold? What should the cost per unit sold be? If it's a manufacturing business, there's a lot of standard things like what's your inventory record accuracy? How many days inventory stock do you have? What's your inventory lead time? What's your manufacturing cycle time? Those sorts of standard metrics that come from an ERP system. And then you've got tack time, which is a, a lean measure as well. So you look at those standard metrics to see what's going on. Um, you need to immerse yourself in the business. So you, you, the manager can tell you exactly what's going on. And I'll give an example. A client said, you know, I'm looking. My staff are telling me I need to hire more people. Yeah. Okay. So let's just use a basic formula to work out whether that's true or not. Like how many units of work do you do? How, many, how long do they take? Yeah. What else do people do? Let, how long does that take? Let's calculate it out. And I calculate it out and says, well, based on this, You've got too many people. So yep. where are you losing time? And the managers sit there and go, I don't know. So then you've got to go find out where the time is being lost um, in their business. Um, and that's normally stopping and starting or not prioritizing the work properly, having a problem in their planning system or uh, people not really being clear what their, their job really is. So those sorts of problems exist. So you need to immerse yourself in the business and go and have a look and a see and a feel and see where inventory is building, where the line's running, where it's not running where um, employees are frustrated and what they're saying is causing their frustration, which isn't necessarily the actual problem, but it gives you somewhere to sniff around and have a look. So you need to sort of look and see and feel, and then you'll know what KPIs would fix the problems that I'm seeing in this business. And it's different for every business, but I don't never look at the financial statements. That's not necessary, but I quite often work with finance people to work out what is the cost of sales because... Um, Quite often, that's the one that you want to get a 10% reduction in cost of sales. So Yeah, yeah. so interesting point about cost of goods sold and cost of uh, the unit, right? I mean, that's very important. And the kind of, you know, customers we typically engage with, obviously not everybody is going to have the cost of unit. And obviously that's going to be very important as you, as you mentioned. So from your perspective, let's say if they are not tracking it, sometimes what they do is they are going to track really at the financial statement level and, and operations people don't really have any understanding of their cost of, of the product because what they are going to do is they are simply going to have the total cost and they are going to divide it by whatever measurement they have to determine the cost. So that's not the actual cost. In your opinion, the no. cost of a unit is really important, especially in the job shops, right? So in your yeah. experience, is cost important for all of the businesses or some businesses? Yeah. What will be your perspective on that? No. Cost is super important to understand yep. so that you're not, you know, you're not trying to grow a line of business that's losing money. Um, but the problem is a lot of people overanalyze cost. So they say, look, it's, you know, I'm paying my staff today $40 an hour. I've got to add some super. I've got to add some cost of employment. I've got to add a percentage for the warehousing. I've got to add a percentage for this and a percentage for that. And then they sit there going, should I add a $1.50 or a $1.60? And you're like, look, if it, it doesn't actually matter. 
Yep. Just come up with the best cost of goods you can do in the next one hour and just what you know. If you need to refine the numbers, if if the cost and the sales price are that marginal that you need to refine the numbers, this is not a good product. And um, what you need to do is look at if you use a crude system, you should be able to say, yeah, this is roughly the cost. And so you say, hey, we've got to get our cost down. So they start trying to reduce the numbers that are in the equation. Okay. But that's just changing your baseline as well. So what you really want to do is say, well, if we're going to use these numbers, let's stick with these numbers and then let's see a reduction in cost based on this measurement rather than a, an absolutely hugely precise measurement that takes six months to try and work out what is what exactly is the cost. So what we want to do is look at what are the key contributors to cost and how do we those build up and yep. then let's track those key contributors and see that we're seeing a reduction in some of those key contributors. Now, that won't be the absolute cost of sales, but it'll be an indicative cost of sales, which is better than what they have right now. Yeah, and that's a pretty good description. So basically what you're saying is just have the, the major contributors of the cost, maybe four or five. You don't have to count for every dollar. And uh, as long as you have that, that should be good for you, right? Yes, and some costs are fixed. Whether you include them or don't include them, it doesn't matter. Like we're not going to reduce the number of overheads. So, well, we might, but it's unlikely. That's not the target. So if you're not reducing, planning to reduce the number of overheads, factoring them into the cost for improvement purposes isn't essential. Um, you can factor them in so you know your cost, but you're really looking at looking for the key cost levers that you're going to try and seek to improve and having those included, and then you can refine the actual cost with the overheads and other things that you're not going to change um, at a later date. Okay, amazing. So that's it for today. Do you have any last-minute closing thoughts, Ian? No, I would just encourage um, every every manufacturing and operations manager and a, a mentor of mine said to this to me when I was about 21 years old and it stuck with me for all those years, is have a look at your business and assume that your quality could be 10% higher, your cost could be 10% lower and your production could be 10% higher. That's your current problem. Now go and solve it. So that's probably the best lesson I could uh, offer any any manufacturing manager or CFO. Go and tackle that problem and, and you'll do well. All right, amazing. Thank you so much for your time and insight, Ian. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Sam. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Ian, follow him on LinkedIn. His LinkedIn handle is iPrat. It's I-P-R-A-T. T. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Ram Krishnamurthy, where he discusses why costing strategies matter for an ERP implementation and how to make an ERP project successful. Also, the interview with Dave Griffith, where he discusses why manufacturers must look for low-hanging fruits when exploring the path of Industry 4.0. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you, and I hope to get you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.